If you could take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, I'd like to read the first two verses. And then I will look at those verses incrementally in, in some detail and comment accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your, your word and to comment upon it from the things I've, I've learned along the way and continue to learn. I pray that it would come to this congregation in a way that they would highly benefit that your Holy Spirit would impart to them what they need. In your name, we pray. Amen. So Luke 4, verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2, says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. You may be seated. The pastoral heart in me wants to enter into Luke for a bit because I I know some of you are struggling with things in life. For some, it's marital challenges. For others, your children prove a heavy burden and you want to do right by them. Others suffer from physical ailments or emotional ones. So, I guess I think we should hang out nearby Jesus with Luke. We'll get to know Jesus better, I assure you. And he will help us from heaven. He's not far from any one of us. He wants to continue to speak to you and to me. And yes, he is far greater, listen, he is far greater than we currently give him credit. He is more grand than a, more grand than a box that you likely have him in. You go back to that children's sermon. When you first meet Jesus, it says, C.S. Lewis expressed, you're surprised by joy. He loves me, you learn. And he forgives me. Neither thing about him do you understand fully, but both things are true. And so you wrap, you wrap your mind as best you can around what you've just learned about him. Certainly Jesus is new to you, and you know you are starting in the faith. But he is so much more deep. He is also a lot bigger. And yet he is neither. For both those words still express human confinement. So you begin with him in your relational mental shoebox. Maybe that's to be expected but it should not be tolerated. 
If you keep him boxed to your understanding, then you will have limited him, limited him, and turned him into something resembling a lesser God, like your idol. Idols are not very good at ministering to people. So as we begin with Luke 4, please accept that you must grow up in your knowledge and in your relationship, and the best way to approach him is to kneel with humility of soul and ask him to continue to show you himself. You'll probably get some things wrong about him. In fact, you probably currently have some things wrong. Ask him to clear that up. And never be proud, as I mentioned, about the size your box becomes. You should not think it is possible to become proud of the size of the box, but it is. It's often what tempts men. A person learns a little about God and thinks he's got him figured out and then becomes proud, kind of pompous, ass-like. But that God, that God, That God is too small and that man is too big. St. Augustine said in a sermon one time, So what are we to say, brothers, about God? For if you have fully grasped what you say, sorry, for if you have fully grasped what you want to say, it isn't God. If you've been able to comprehend it, you have comprehended comprehended something else instead of God. Wait. This does not mean that we cannot know him or know about him. It doesn't mean that. We're supposed to study and learn of him and from him. Indeed, it is another sort of pride really, that boasts we can never truly know for sure. Oh, really? Are you so confident that God cannot reveal himself? That's the, that's the flip side. We can never really know for sure. This is more the proudness of people who want to be accepted by others. Specifically those without faith, who, who respect only what the Apostle calls the wisdom of this world, 1 Corinthians 2. Those who will surely ridicule any person who announces, thus saith the Lord, John 15. That's wrong too. So Jesus does expect you will learn of him and from him, but you must put pride aside and neither force him into your small box nor stand with the world of men who refuse God the ability to truly speak. Will you be open to Jesus? 
That's the question. He wants to minister to you. And he ministers by his word and his Holy Spirit. Will you let him? Will you work to break down the cardboard boxes that you limit him with? Will you accept his words, special grace, special revelation that makes you automatically an outsider with the rest of mankind? Are you willing to humble yourself? So let's get to know him better then and submit to him more and more. I was about, speaking of knowing someone, I was about 23 when I first met a man named Rollin Westendorf. I was a Christian grade school teacher for two of his children. They were twins, Natalie and Peter. Rowland had nine children, I think. I liked both children very much. And I'd heard Rowland was a serious man who wanted his children to flourish. The other teachers were somewhat intimidated by him, for he had expectations. Rowland was a janitor in a public school, elementary school. Which, in my pride, in my pride, I considered a simple-minded occupation. Again, I was 23. Rollin was a stable and profound and intentional man. He was serious and kind and godly. A few years from when I met him, He became actually the superintendent of the Christian school I was teaching in. And he taught me much, including how to improve my writing skills. They were deplorable. He was patient with me. I I bring him up to illustrate how easy it is to know someone, how, how it is not easy to know someone for who they are. We often base our knowledge of another on small portions of facts, short interactions, the opinions of others. I had Rollin in a shoebox at first. I just finished reading a book by a man who determined to stick it out with his wife in marriage, though she had carried on a longer-term relationship with the neighbor. Neighbor for a while, moved out of the anyway. I had read the review in World Magazine, and the book intrigued me. And I tell you, I give credit to anyone who can stay in their marriage and work things out once unfaithfulness has occurred. Nonetheless, I bring it up because of something that this author wrote at the end of the book. Throughout the book, he shares his struggles with his own history, along with the circumstances by which he and his wife got married, how they lived as a married couple, had children, 
her tendency to not open up in conversation, her unwillingness to show affection, the betrayal that she felt as her father left her mother, her mother's death by cancer, and so on. Anyway, he writes at the end, once they've gotten back together and continued to be married, he says, I never knew her before. Not fully, but I know her now. Including the parts, the parts she was once too fearful to reveal and the parts I was so often too frightened to see. I now understand that to comprehend the immensity of someone's pain is to comprehend the full breadth of the soul. The beauty of my wife is more beautiful to me than I ever could have imagined because I see the fullness of her now and I can admit without reserve that she is definitely one of my favorite people. So as we spend Sundays in Luke, I'm suggesting how much more is the opportunity to get to know Jesus better. Now, I've leapt over the first three chapters of Luke, dealing with the birth of Jesus. We hear those frequently each year. And his baptism, I I jumped over that, and the lineage that's presented in chapter 3. I wanted to skip even the first 12 verses of chapter 4 on Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. It's been covered frequently by pastors with different emphasis. But, but verses 1 and 2 kept calling to me, or Jesus did, his Holy Spirit prompting me, Whatever, verses 1 and 2 began to feel pretty important for me and you to get to know him. So I'm starting there. In fact, with verse 2 first. It says at the end of verse 2, And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Point 1. Jesus was a man. Men get hungry, not gods. Men do. Forty days hungry. Forty days hungry, that is. It was a voluntary time of fasting, I think. It still has a place in the Christian life. It's been long considered a spiritual discipline, Not going to get off on fasting here, okay? But its design was to improve relationship, improve relations with God. That's why people fasted. It provided a greater intimacy. Like prayer and worship, the Lord's Supper and other means of grace, it's assumed that when you fasted, you linked prayer to it? Or why would it be done? 
I've preached somewhere else on fasting. Again, I'm not going to spend more time on it, but to say that 40 days without food does much more to the body than just make one hungry is to say it all. You enter into the state of starvation. A person's body begins to feed off of muscle tissue. Furthermore, Jesus was likely hungry on day one and two as well. Make no mistake, it was not as if the hunger pains just started after the 40th day. That's not what the wording is aimed at. The verses, the verses confirming his physical condition, following the long fast, the desert, the temptations of Satan, and, they, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The words announce frailty. They emphasize his humanity. He was hungry. It was important to church history that Jesus' humanity never got lost. Fully God and fully man. We read from the Athanasian Creed, as I did before, for the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. That means, of course, as I said, He's maintaining it even now. Which really shocked me. When I first heard someone say that Jesus is still in his spiritually resurrected human body, I thought, huh? That's not right. That's not how I ever thought of it. The little things I heard along the way growing up. As a young man, I always kind of thought he was up there, kind of invisible, ethereal. But human bodies are not invisible, not even spiritually improved ones. Brings me to the second point. Jesus is truly man. He came to us as the second Adam. He, he showed us perfect humanity. That is how he lived. How do you live perfect humanity in utter submission to God, as every one of us should do? But no man does. So Jesus, based upon his perfect life, he could be our substitute for punishment. As the second Adam, he could play, uh, sorry, he could pay humanity's debt. Because of what Jesus accomplished, he is the greater Adam. He earned for us not only the forgiveness of sins, but life after death. Paul wrote this about the Lord. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not 
the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15. Why was he hungry? Because he was a natural man, he hungered. And Jesus experienced hunger more severely than you and I have ever known it. Pretty sure about that. He was famished. And all the while, buffeted by the devil's temptations, but staying true to God and his word. Point three, because he was fully human, he became mankind's intercessor and our high priest in heaven. Does he, knows, does he know what ails us as people? Yes. Because he is a person. It is the beauty of the incarnation. He took on human flesh, John 1, 14. So can he empathize with your hunger? Surely. What about your exhaustion? He kept awake, praying, while his other disciples kept falling asleep. I think he knows exhaustion. What about pain? Did he suffer pain? <laughs> Greater pain than you? Physical pain? Emotional pain? On the emotional front, I think it was his first Sunday preaching there. His hometown synagogue wanted to throw him off a cliff. I think you get a sense of betrayal when something like that happens. I think we know the answers. But if we don't take time to stop and think about these things, we just move on as if he can't relate. Jesus experienced in spades what we experience. Our material bodies are real and important. God made them. They have limitations. And maybe more limitations, more hindrances since the fall. They can hunger, they can get hurt. They suffer breaks and bruises and mending. They get burned, they get cold, they gain muscle, they grow faster, they can be buffeted, and they can experience pleasure and our minds and personalities and will are, are the householders of the house, as Augustine said somewhere else. The Son of God, when he became the Son of Man, took on a house like ours. He suffered and learned how to prevail. I said, yes, he learned how to prevail. 
How did he do it? How did he succeed at what we so often fail? We're told in Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He spent a lot of time on his knees. And being made perfect, it continues, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He did not skip happily through life. He experienced suffering. He empathizes with us when we suffer. He gets that. He gets it better. But he doesn't empathize with our sin. Make no mistake about that. There's no excuse for that. Sometimes people use their their suffering as an excuse for why they can sin. Jesus has no tolerance for that. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What this means is that under trials and persecution and suffering, we can be assured there will be someone sympathizing with us. He knows the human body and mine. He knows how hard it is to remain faithful to God in the frailty of our natural selves. The thing he always did, the thing Jesus always did was withstand and suffer if necessary. The thing he never did was give in and sin. Jesus knows hunger. Now look at verse 1 in this section, in just the beginning of verse 2. It says there, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, it says, was led by the Spirit. That brings me to the fourth point. He went about life, Jesus went about life intentionally for God. He showed Satan, actually, there in the desert and elsewhere, what it looked like to live. Satan wasn't living that way. You don't live for your own comfort, or for things, or for power and prestige. You simply live for your Creator. Him only shall you serve, Jesus says in the upcoming discussion between the two. How did the man Jesus know what life was supposed to be? How did the man Jesus know what life was supposed to be? He learned it in the Scripture 
for one. He went to synagogue and worshipped and learned it there. It's the word of God that becomes the basis for every verbal reply he lays out to the devil in verses to come. Jesus made what he learned from the Bible part of himself. He built his life around it. And to become this person, the obedient one of God, the obedient one of God and his word, Jesus had to commune with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit. There is no obeying God if we neglect to set our minds on the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit, for Jesus that's imperative. That's how you live this life, successfully. This is interesting. It's what Paul wrote in Romans 8. 3b-ish to 6. Paul says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, like he did. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So one thing, Jesus demonstrated how a human can walk according to the Spirit not according to the flesh. He was filled with the Spirit of God, and it's by the Spirit and according to the Word that he lived the perfect life. Yet he hungered. He was tempted. He suffered. He cried out to God. What did it say? It says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Why did he do that? If he was so about the Spirit, what's with the loud cries and tears? The Spirit taught him the importance of those loud cries and, and tears. That's not unspiritual. It's part of the lessons administered in the course called How to Obey God as a Human. There's no sin in that. Sometimes you pray, you must pray loud and with tears. It's the, it's the way of the Spirit of God, apparently. Yes, Jesus' life was intentionally tied to God and, and built upon God's Word. So to be led by the Spirit means at times that you will pray from a position of great anguish. You will be taught obedience by suffering. None of us really want that. I mean, we do. Conceptually. 
But when it's real time, real life, we don't really want to suffer. We also see that during those 40 days, Jesus was being tempted by the devil. Being tempted by the devil, which brings me to point five. Satan chose his way. Chose his way to live. He wanted what he wanted. He was self-willed. He still is. He pursues pleasure, power, prestige. And we know from what we've learned, he gets in return a life destroyed. An everlasting fire. It's the pursuit of autonomy. To live by your own rules. That is the great fall for mankind too. It's the insatiable appetite that drives fallen angels and fallen people. Autonomy. I want to do what I want to do. Of course, Satan still thinks he can have things this way. He even believed in the desert there that he could turn things to his advantage. That he could draw the right cards to somehow scoop up the chips from the table. He thought that if he could cause the Son of Man to fail and become like the rest of men, then maybe game, set, and match. Perhaps then he might continue on as Ruler of this world, John 14.30 and 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Last point, number six. The existence Satan continued to choose was an existence to be cleaved from God, to be separated from God. Not so with Jesus. It seems incredible. How dare anyone question God, right? He is God and we are not. He made us for his purposes. We do not self-exist, nor are we able to self-define. The same goes for the devil, though. Who does he think he is? Jesus demonstrates humility. His purpose was to do the will of of his Father. Further, his understanding of who God is was, was a blessed one. He lived a life in such a way of never, never enclosing God in a box. There was ample humility involved. To allow Jesus to learn as a man without presuming upon God. I don't think we're ever quite there in the same way. We just learned he was heard because of his reverence. You and me, we too all regularly decide about life and God. We choose daily 
either to submit to His Word and be led by His Spirit, or to set our minds on self, the flesh, a life of autonomy. Indeed, when we give in to the temptation to call our own shots and set our minds on the sinful nature, it motivates us to keep God in a box, in a smaller box. But that God is too small. He will not minister to you. And maybe that's the point. If we keep him in the box... We keep him from ministering. Whereas Jesus teaches us to live a life where we don't carry such a box, but find our purpose living in the box God created and designed for us, that is the fulfilling life. Let's pray. Lord, I I ask that... um, that our time in Luke would be well spent, that you would show yourself to us more and more. Because um, there's a lot we need to learn about you. And frankly, there's a lot we need you to teach us about ourselves. We ask that you do that. We give you permission, you might say. 